Good morning, everyone. Where I lived just a few months ago, we would have said, But today is not a language session. Today is uh, a day where you guys get to know who I am, who my wife is. Some of you know us already. I'm looking out, and I see a lot of familiar faces, and it's good to see you again. And I see a lot of faces that I'm like, who are you? And you're thinking the exact same thing. So it's glad to know that everyone in this room is in the same boat. Um, first off, uh, my name is Sean Richards, and uh, I am married to Ginny Richards. And if you're wondering who Ginny Richards is, uh, look for the girl that is way out of my league that I trapped into marrying me about eight years ago. She's back there next to her dad, Dwight. Um, yeah, so I married up. I married up not only to my wife, but also into a great family. And uh, I was actually just thinking about it this morning that it was nine years ago uh, this last week that I asked Darcy and Dwight if I could marry their daughter. And uh, it was nine, nine years ago on Wednesday that I asked her to be my wife. So it's been nine years since I've had a connection to CBF. And man, it's been a wild nine years to see what God has done through us since then. And also to see how CBF has grown and matured over those years. It's been really incredible to see. So I want to thank you all as a church for being a part of our ministry from day one, literally day one from the day we got married on even before then. Um, But I want to tell you guys a story about where we live. We live on Monom Island, which is in Papua New Guinea. Uh, It's an active volcano off the north coast. And there will be pictures later and all that stuff for you to see, but that's not uh, what this is about. What this is about is who lives near us. And so I want to tell you about our three closest neighbors, the three people who live nearest to us in proximity. The closest is a man who's known as the most powerful sorcerer in our entire language group. There are 20,000 people, and everyone says that he is the most powerful. He has six wives, and he has 47 children. And everyone on our island is fearful of this man. The next closest is a friendly man, But he has a tendency to drink heavily and abuse his wife. And recently he abused her so bad that she took their young children and went to the next village until he brought a pig to say sorry to her family because of the way that he treated her. So we have a sorcerer. Second, we have a wife beater. Third neighbor. Next closest guy to my house. On the surface, he looks like a decent guy, single dad, takes care of his daughter, seems to be a good dad. He takes care of his older mother who's married to the guy who has six wives. She's number two on the list, and she's older. She's got a a big goiter on her neck, and he looks out after her because her husband doesn't really care for her. And so he's a good son and a good father. But you dig a little bit deeper, and you find out that he murdered his wife. Not only did did he murder his wife, but the entire village is convinced that he's innocent. The reason he is innocent is because, allegedly, the spirits had already attacked her and damaged her body so bad that when he beat her, that is why she died. So in their eyes, he's innocent. So those are our three closest neighbors. Sorcerer, wife beater, murderer, and an entire village who thinks that it's completely normal and okay. That is where we live now. Those are our neighbors So you might be wondering, why in the world would you want to go there? 
Well, there's a long story behind that. And so that's what I'm going to start off with doing is telling our story because God has worked in our lives and it didn't happen overnight. For Jenny, it started by hearing a missionary speak when she was a child. She was raised in Cornerstone Bible Fellowship when she was a baby is when the church started and they have been members of this church that whole time. And so she grew up going to this church and she grew up hearing missionaries. She grew up hearing the word of God that transformed her life and convicted her to want to go and be a missionary. Now, she didn't always know that that was what was going to happen. There were bumps along the way. There's no smooth path to anything. But my story is much different. I grew up in an unchurched family. Um, If you ask my family if we were Christian, we would say, yeah, we're Christian. Well, at least my parents would. If you ask me, I would say, no, I don't believe in anything. But if you ask my parents, they'd say we're Christian because they celebrated Christmas and Easter. However, we didn't even go to church on those days. So uh, we weren't even Christian in name only. Like it was, just, it was just a cultural thing. We celebrated Christmas and Easter. That's what I grew up in. I ended up going to the University of Arkansas. And during that time, I grew up in northern Iowa, ended up at the University of Arkansas. That's a whole other story altogether. But I ended up at the University of Arkansas living in the worst dorm on campus. Does anyone know the worst dorm on campus? Why is it hump dump? It's gross. It is a nasty dorm. And when I went, it's different now. It has air conditioning now. When I went, there was no air conditioning. And that is where they stuck all the dumb freshmen who didn't bring anything of value to the university. They just crammed us all in there to sweat it out for the year. So I lived there. I lived on the seventh floor. And the entire dorm is filled with these freshmen with no value. However, the fourth floor... There were these upperclassmen who chose to live in this dorm, who chose not to live off campus, not to live in the nice new dorm at the time, or any of the, any of the other dorms whatsoever. They chose to live in the hump dump, Humphreys Hall. And the reason why they chose to live there is because they wanted to share the gospel with the incoming freshmen that no one else really cared about. They were crammed into this, this sweaty, sauna, hot mess of a dorm. And they lived there on purpose. And they went there and they went door to door and they shared the gospel with all the incoming freshmen, hoping that they would have an impact for Christ on their college campus. Now, I know a lot of people like to think secular universities is where you send your kids if you don't want them to walk with the Lord anymore. I disagree. I would say a secular university is where you send your kids if you want them to have to choose whether or not they're going to live for the Lord. It's not a safe environment, but you can be on fire for the Lord and serve God like these students did. When I was a freshman, I heard this good news because of them. But they came knocking on all the doors, and they would always pass over my door. The reason being is because, as you can tell, I'm a large guy. I'm outgoing, loud, gregarious. You add in substances that make you inebriated, and I was kind of intimidating for these guys trying to evangelize. And so they'd always skip over my door. And I found out later that they would talk about me behind my back. They would say, Sean needs Jesus. Someone (laughs) should go share with him. And that's the way it went on. August, September, October, November, December, next, next semester, January. And it was February, finally, 2005. Two seniors decided they're going to come knock on my door. They come knock on my door. And of course, by now, I'm on to the racket. I know what they're up to. 
because they've shared with everyone else. Now, we may be freshmen, but we're not that dumb. We talk, and so I know that these guys go around, and they, they you know, thump the Bible at people. But that night, I was in a place where I was broken. I was hurt, and this had been building up for years under the surface. I knew that there was something wrong in my life. And that night, when they came and knocked on my door, I decided, all right, I'll give these, these guys a chance. I'll hear what they have to say. And for the first time, I heard a clear presentation of the gospel. <clears throat> you see, we live in America. If you grow up in America and you haven't heard the words, Jesus died for your sins, you're deaf. But what does that mean? Who cares? Why does it matter? None of those questions were ever answered for me. But for the first time, these guys laid out the gospel in such a clear manner. I understood that God was perfect, holy, and blameless, and that man had sinned. And therefore, because of our sin, we are separated from God because he is perfect and holy. And so we're separated from God. And there's nothing we can do to make ourselves good. A dirty rag cannot make itself clean. And so they told me that the reason that Jesus died for your sins is because he too was perfect, holy, and blameless. And when he died that death, he paid the price for our sins and allowed us, if we believed it to be true, to be back in communion with God. That relationship could be restored. So the first time in my life, I understood why it mattered that Jesus died for your sins. It was clear to me. I was 19 or 18 years old at the time when I heard it. Now you're thinking, that's cool, man. You, be, you believed, you became a Christian, you got saved. No. <laughs> I understood what the gospel was. But what I knew is I didn't know what I believed. And it took me several months. See, a lot of people think that evangelism is an event. It's not. It's a process. It's a relationship. It begins with relationship and has truth in it. And through that process is how people come to know the Lord. Uh, if you got saved through an event, I'm guessing it wasn't just that event. That somewhere along the line, people connected with you. People cared for you. And that's what happened. I lied to these guys because they were good evangelists. They wanted to seal the deal right then and there. Sean, would you like to pray to receive Jesus as your Savior today? And I said, I made that decision a few weeks ago because I wanted them off my back. And so I'm thinking, I got them off my back. And they're thinking, we've got a new Christian. This guy needs to be discipled. We need to educate him in God's word. And so they were trying to do all this follow-up and everything. And I would just like, okay, don't, don't partake in any substances on Tuesdays because Joe's going to call you to take you to the campus ministry. Uh, you know, try to be good. And, <clears throat> and through all this, I'm trying to clean myself up. Fails every time. Uh, I'm trying to be good because I'm surrounding myself now with better people who are better at following rules, it seemed like. I'm trying to clean myself up, trying to work, trying to look the part, and I was failing over and over and over again. But some of these guys didn't care that I failed over and over and over again. Those two seniors, they had some friends that would just call me up to hang out because they heard that I was kind of new to this whole thing. 
They didn't know that I wasn't a Christian yet, but they would call me to hang out. They'd call me to go on man trips on dead day before finals. And we'd go up to Springfield, Missouri, go to Bass Pro, go to Lambert's, eat the throat rolls, gorge ourselves on food, come back and hope to pass our finals. But we'd have these great times and they would, in, they would involve me in what they were doing. And uh, they didn't get upset when I would say the wrong things. They wouldn't tell me how bad I was when I talked about the things that I enjoyed watching, what movies I enjoyed watching, or what things I thought were funny. They didn't judge me. They treated me like a person, and they cared for me. That summer, everything finally hit me. I was struggling with some of my sins about, man, why would God forgive me for something like that? But then I, everything clicked when my best friend from high school, Mark, he died in a motorcycle accident. And I knew Mark, he was, he was unchurched like I was. And unless something happened that I was unaware of, Mark was in hell because he didn't believe this to be true. And I struggled with that. I struggled with it because I knew where I belonged. And I didn't know what to do. I was frozen with these things that I didn't know if God would forgive me for them. But that's when it all clicked. It all clicked because I realized that it's not about how bad the things were that I had done. It was the fact that I was a sinner. That's why I did those bad things. It's because I was separated, not because of my sin, but I sinned because I was separated, because I was born into sin, because that sin was passed on generation to generation. And at that moment, Everything clicked, and I believed that God forgive me for all my sins. And from that point forward, I knew I wasn't going to be a lukewarm Christian. I'd seen them in high school. I'd seen them in college. And I wasn't going to live like that. I wanted to live for Christ because I understood what he did for me. Not only for me, but for everyone. So immediately I thought I'm going to be a pastor. Because I want to tell people about Jesus. And I mean, I was like a chicken with its head cut off. Every person I would meet, I would find a way to share my testimony. Oh, yeah, like two months ago, I was a big-time stoner. And they're like, what? And I'm like, well, let me tell you about why I'm not anymore. So it was like an easy transition to the gospel every time. Um, But I was telling everyone. I was passionate about this because this news was too good to hold. It had come to me, and it's on its way to someone else. And then that summer... Uh, a year later, I went to a summer discipleship project through, a, through our campus ministry. I was down in Destin, Florida, and this guy came to talk about missions while we were there. He came to talk about missions, and he gave this whole presentation. My eyes are like this big around, mind blown, because I had never understood that there were people in this world without access to God's word. I knew there were people like me who hadn't heard hadn't heard a clear presentation, but there were people without access. Are you kidding me? So afterwards, I stick around. There's a small group of us, and I ask this guy. His name's Claude Hickman. I ask Claude, hey, Claude, what happens to those people who live in the jungle who never have an opportunity to hear the good news? What happens to them? And like any good teacher, he doesn't answer my question. He leads me through scripture. And the first place he takes me is to Romans 10, 13 through 15, where it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so in order to, for them, what's going to happen to them is they need to be told. They have to call upon the name of the Lord. If they don't believe, if they don't call upon the name of the Lord, then we know what happens. That's what's required is they have to call upon the name of the Lord. They have to believe. And so... This is what I knew. They have to call upon the name of the Lord. Someone has to tell them, and they have to be sent. They have to believe someone has to tell them. It was shooting me right in the heart. And then he took me to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So now I know they need to call upon the name of the Lord. Someone has to tell them, and it's going to happen. We see in this picture that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be present worshiping the Lord. So they have to call upon the name of the Lord. Someone has to tell them. It's going to happen. And then he leads me to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the verse that everyone hears when it comes to missions. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so now I know they need to call upon the name of the Lord. Someone has to tell them it's going to happen. And Jesus told us to do this almost 2,000 years ago. And then he does a dirty, dirty trick. He takes me to Acts chapter 20, verses 20 through 25 through 27. And this was the dirtiest of them all. And now behold, I know that none, that none of you among that none of you among whom have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I test to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Paul is talking to the Ephesians, and he says, Listen, I don't have any blood on my hands with you. I was faithful to share this good news. And so now I know they need to call upon the name of the Lord Someone has to go and tell them. It's going to happen. Jesus told us to do it almost 2,000 years ago. And if I'm not faithful to tell them about Christ, that I've got blood on my hands. That's why it was a dirty trick. Because now everything else is like vague. You know, like, you know, this needs to happen. It ought to happen. But now we see Paul saying, if he didn't take responsibility, he had blood on his hands. And I realized in that moment that if I didn't do something anything about this that I had blood on my hands that I was guilty because I had this truth I had this message I have all the access to this truth and message that you could ever imagine but there are people without access and if I don't do something about that I'm guilty by my own conscience and before the Lord so from that day forward I decided This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to live for this purpose. Now, at the time, trust me, I wasn't thinking about living on an active volcano in Papua New Guinea. That was the furthest thing from my mind. 
I mean, I like camping as much as the next guy, but after a few days, let's go home. I don't want to go on a month-long month long backpacking trip. That's just not who I am. I'm not an outdoorsy guy by the, the grand scheme of things. Um, I like my comforts of America. But I knew I had to do something. I knew I had to live for this purpose. And so as I went down that road, God continued to work in my heart. I thought I would go to India I'd be in India riding around on a rickshaw eating Indian food. It would be like awesome, right? Who loves Indian food? I do. Um, I thought that's what God was going to have for me. That's not what he had for me. In every step, as I'm finishing up college at the University of Arkansas, I realized that God is leading me down this path, not to go immediately, but to be prepared. There was an organization that was called New Tribes Mission. Now it's known as Ethnos 360. And this guy came and told me about how, hey, Sean, don't worry. I know you've only been a believer for three or four years. That's okay. You don't need to be ready to plant a church. You don't need to be ready to translate the Bible today. You just have to be willing to be prepared. Just like if you wanted to be a doctor, you'd have to go to med school. But if you want to do this type of work, it's really important that you get prepared. And so this guy brainwashed me into thinking it's doable. And I was, as I was about ready to finish up the University of Arkansas, go and start training, go to Bible school, I met Ginny. And here Ginny was, grew up in, a, in the church, heard good teaching her whole life. And she was in grad school getting her master's in counseling at John Brown University, and we were working at the same counseling agency. Um, and while we were there, I found out that Ginny was already looking into missions. She had already called New Tribes Mission to see if there's a way that she could use her gifts in missions. And man, she was out of my league. So first thing I did is I prayed about it. And God was like, absolutely, Sean, go for it. Don't mess this up. And, uh, and by God's grace, I didn't mess it up. And uh, we ended up getting married, going into training, and we went to two years of Bible school. And it was an incredible first two years of marriage. And then we went on to missionary training where they taught us all the ins and outs of what it means to be a missionary. And I know what you're thinking, like making a fire by rubbing six together. No, that's not what it was. It was about how to translate God's word. How do you teach God's word to people who do not have a basis of who God is? How do you address those worldview presuppositions. And we're actually facing this in America today more and more. It used to be assumed that everyone knew who God was. Everyone assumed that God was good. Everyone assumed that God was holy. But those assumptions don't exist anymore. How do we address those things when we teach? And we realize we have to teach at a worldview level. We can't just jump to the middle of the story that is God's word and expect people to catch up with all the background. No. So we start in the very beginning. And this is what our plan is when we're out there on Monum. We're going to start from the very beginning in our teaching, starting with creation, who God is. We need to show from God's word who God is. This is what his word says. We have to explain where God's word came from. Why is this book something we can trust as opposed to other things? We have to go through those things. We have to lay down those foundations. And then we teach chronologically, showing that God's faithfulness is shown over and over and over again. And he does not lie. He does not deceive. That when God says something, that's the truth. And we show that his promise to send a Savior is not something new, but it showed up immediately after the fall of man. 
And we see that promise passed on generation to generation, through patriarch to patriarch, through, from king to king. And finally, through the prophets, we see a picture of who the Savior is going to be. And when Jesus comes on the scene, it becomes crystal clear that he is the promised one that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that clues and hints have been dropped along the way and now we know for sure this is him. And so when they hear the gospel, when they hear that Jesus died on the cross, they know what that means. Not only do they know what that means, but when he rose from the grave, they understand it even more so. They understand that by raising from the grave... He defeated sin, that thing that's been plaguing mankind all the way back, starting in Genesis chapter 3. They know that. They see that. They have a foundation of faith. One of the struggles we have in America is people get saved, and then they know nothing about the foundation. What happens when you build a house on bad foundation? Any builders out here? It falls down. So we lay that good foundation so when we plant this church and when we teach God's word that it has something to stand on. Because it's easy to go in there like those guys did to me. They lucked out. They shared this bridge illustration, jumped straight to Romans, didn't even go through uh, you know, any of the Old Testament, no, no gospels, straight to Romans. And uh, they lucked out because I had some presuppositions that God was good. You know, but without those presuppositions, it would have been completely lost on me. So we teach that way. We had to learn phonetics, so when we speak, we don't sound like stupid Americans, even though we still do. Uh, we had to learn about translation, how to go about translating God's word. It's a huge monumental task. We went through all this training, and now we move to Papua New Guinea, and we end up at Monum Island. Monum is a place. Uh, it's a language group in a, in a location all in one. Monum has 20,000 speakers. Their homeland is on this active volcano off the north coast of Papua New Guinea. And we move there. And we have these neighbors that we love. But at the same time, when you look at it on paper, they're just rotten, horrible people. That's where God has brought us. But we're just in the process of learning language currently. We're about one-third of the way finished with learning the Monum language. We've been cracking at it for about six and a half months on the ground. Um, we had some interruptions from, you know, little things like a volcano erupting and things like that. But we had these interruptions that pulled us out a little bit early for our home assignment. But we're going back, and we, our goal is to finish learning language, to teach them to read and write in their own language. For those of them who can't, many of them cannot. And then we're going to translate God's word in their language, and we're going to develop the lessons and teach them in their language. And eventually, we want to hand all this over to them. We want to hand over all the teaching. We want a church established. Not just, we don't want to just evangelize the modern people and walk away. That's not our goal. Our goal is to see a thriving church established amongst the modern people so that when we finish up the translation, we can leave, never come back, and they will be better for it. That is our goal. And so everything we do, we're immediately trying to hand it off. As soon as we begin teaching literacy, teaching them to read and write in their own language, as soon as we have some teachers, we want to hand that off to someone else. And as soon as we have these lessons developed and we're teaching, we're discipling people, and we see these guys are starting to qualify as teachers, we start plugging them into those roles, helping them out. 
After a few years, we don't want to be the ones up front talking. We want someone, a monom person up there talking. We want to work ourselves out of a job from day one. And our goal is to finish. Finish this work. To have the New Testament translated clearly in their language and for a church to be established that is not in need of us. And you hear all this about what we're doing. And you hear our story And you might be thinking, man, these guys are amazing. These are heroes. Kids, look at them. Be like them. I want you to know something. We're not special. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are not special. We are normal people. I have a communication degree, by all means. There is nothing special about that. We are not special people. We are normal people. We have our flaws. We're living with Darcy and Dwight for the, for the next few weeks. Ask them if I have flaws. They will tell you immediately, yes, John has many of them. What were we thinking when we said yes? Not only is he this type of guy, but he took our daughter to the other side of the world along with our grandkids. Now, um, we are normal people. We are not special. God did not wake me up to look up in the sky and see Papua New Guinea correctly spelled in the sky in the clouds. That was not what the calling looked like. What the calling looked like was me seeing God's word, being convicted, Jenny knowing from God's word, being convicted that we have a responsibility to do something about this. And it's not just for the chosen few. Yeah, some of us go. Some of us have a desire to go. We have the ability to go. We have the means to go. And so we go. But everyone has a responsibility. There is no easy way out on this. God has called us to live a life of sacrifice for his glory. And that's why we're doing this. Don't be mistaken. When I ask Claude about what happens to those people who never had the opportunity to hear, I was thinking about those people. But now that I live amongst those people and I realize I've got a sorcerer with six wives and 47 kids, a wife beater and a murderer as my neighbors and a whole community that thinks it's okay, I realize they don't deserve it. But it's not about what they deserve. It's not about what I deserved. We finished up with that song and I said, he alone is worthy. And that is the truth. That is the only reason why we can do this work, why we are willing to do this, why I'm willing to leave the comforts of America and go live on Monom Island among sorcerers, murderers, and wife beaters is because he is worthy. And every sacrifice that you as a church and you individually make to see God's name glorified amongst the nations is worth it because he is worthy. I want to go back to the story about my neighbors, but I want to go back further. I want to go back three years. We were back having our third son, Ash. We were on a short break, and we were living in North Little Rock, and our neighbor, which we affectionately called Crazy Mike, lived across the street. And Crazy Mike was crazy. 
and it would be two in the morning, and he would be outside screaming at the top of his lungs, causing fights. The police would come, and I was just like, I can't stand this guy. Man, I would never want to live next to him again a day in my life if I didn't have to. That was my mindset. Now, my neighbors, <laughs> are a sorcerer with six wives, 47 kids, a murderer, and a wife beater. The second day, or third day out on Mono, we moved in December 29th. On January 1st, it's New Year's. I, I look outside, and I, see, I hear this lady screaming, and a guy running as fast as he can. And another guy running behind him, holding an axe, chasing after him. Crazy Mike ain't so bad anymore. <laughs> but see, the thing is, and when I'm living in Papua New Guinea, I expect that. But what does that say about me when it comes to my heart towards Mike? You see, we don't have comforts in Papua New Guinea to protect us. And so it's easy for us not to focus on our comfort there. We can focus on the comfort we wish we had, but we're not going to get it. Um, But the temptation in America, the biggest obstacle that we have in America, even when I'm just back for a few months, is the idol of comfort. It is easy to sacrifice God's glory for your personal comfort. It's easy. I did it with Mike. I didn't want to go over there, sit down, try to reach out to this guy. Instead, I just did the easy thing, tried to be comfortable. It would have been hard to invite Mike into my life. It would have been uncomfortable to invite Mike into my life. But I challenge you, All of you, even you young kids, throughout your lives, if you have the choice between being comfortable or serving God, choose God. Live outside your comfort zone. The enemy, all he wants is for us to be comfortable in America because when we're comfortable, we don't think about God's glory. We're thankful for God providing all the comfort, but that's about the extent we want to take it. We don't want to offer that up to him. So I challenge you, Live outside your comfort zone in every aspect of your life for the purpose of God's glory.